Chapter 33 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Wolf. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 33 Conclusion. Where then do we stand? Small creatures on a small planet revolving about a not very big sun. Jonathan Swift's often misquoted lines, So naturalists observe, a flea hath smaller fleas that on him prey, and these have smaller still to bite him, and so proceed ad infinitum. Embody a rule that works equally well or badly both ways. In the case of the fleas, the upper limit is fairly obvious, but with the earth it is the lower limit that is familiar. Lambert, a contemporary of Laplace, speculated in the opposite direction arguing by analogy from satellites to planets and from planets to the sun that our sun with other suns might be circling around some vaster orb which with its compeers might form the family of a still mightier one so on and on if not ad infinitum yet far beyond our powers of proof no central suns were or are apparent so lambert conjectured them as possibly non-luminous dark bodies do exist, as we have seen, and may be far more numerous than is usually supposed. They might frequently occult some distant star without our ever noticing it. Their existence is sometimes suggested to account for the apparent thinning of the stars in distant space by those who doubt the finiteness of our own universe. But limiting our ideas to what we can see, there is room for much diversity of speculation. Within this restricted region, there certainly appear to be some vast stellar systems far exceeding the dimensions of a simple binary. Mazar, as we have seen, is a spectroscopic binary and also a visual binary. Alcor, the rider, moves with it and so apparently do all but the outermost two of the seven stars of the plow. Other systems are equally distinct. The famous Pleiades, for instance, and judging from their similarity of spectra, most of the bright stars in Orion. It does not now seem possible to regard small nebulae as island universes, in Herschel's phrase, distant galaxies as vast as the Milky Way. They seem rather, since Keeler's estimate, to represent the dispersed material of which the stars are made, and to which dead suns may yet return as dust to dust, possibly disrupted by collision with other dead suns after a short period of bright existence as temporary stars. Such a theory of Nova Persei and its nebulosity is not quite impossible, though strongly discredited on account of the velocities involved. It may be urged against the theory of celestial evolution that each stage of growth should be equally represented, but this could not be expected unless the stages are of equal duration, which is in the last degree unlikely even during visibility. New stars are uncommon, and few, even dull red stars, are known to have disappeared, but this may only show the quickness of these stages compared with the millions of years demanded for the life of a star, which is by every model of reasoning probably but a small part of its actual existence, for most of which it should be invisible. And in this invisibility may lie another view of the finite universe. We know from Newcomb's careful estimate that suns, except in recognized binary and multiple systems, do not cluster closely. 
He computes that only one is to be found on an average in every eight units of space, his unit being a sphere whose radius corresponds to a parallax of a second of arc, or more than three light years. Thus, a sphere of a diameter of some 13 light years will contain on an average one visible star. But it has often been pointed out that any regular distribution of stars, however scanty, in infinite space, must lead inevitably to the conclusion that some star must lie in every direction. It has been suggested that from the distant spaces light has not yet arrived, though on its way, but this is rather making an assumption as to the time of starting, for which no data are given. It seems, however, quite as effective to treat the matter quantitatively on the hypothesis of a short life period. Suppose, then, the visibility of a star to last for 1% of its existence, between one shining and the next, if we carry the evolution to its logical continuation. It follows that if stars lie in every direction in space, there is only one chance in a hundred that of a possibly infinite number of stars in a straight line, the nearest one should be shining. In other words, there is only one chance in a hundred that a star will be seen in any particular direction. The hundred is only given for convenience of illustration. A million would be equally probable or improbable, as we have no data by which to test it. This illustration is not given as a serious effort to combat the idea of a finite universe. It is a practical impossibility for the mind to grasp the conception of a universe finite or infinite. The intention is rather to show the inherent weakness of many abstract speculations. Some generalizations are definite and unmistakable. The visible universe is almost symmetrically divided by the Milky Way, where helium and gaseous stars and nebulae do congregate, while other nebulae are rare, so that it may easily be regarded as the fundamental plane of the universe. We may be, as some maintain, practically in the center of the space bounded by the galaxy. Even if so, it seems the wildest speculation to suggest, with Dr. Wallace, that the solar system is the only system, and the Earth the only planet, in that or any other system, fitted for the abode of man. Shifted a billion miles in any direction, we should still be in the center, but it is not so certain that we are. Newcomb proposes a reference to the astrographic survey, when completed, to decide this question. Easton, following out Keeler's pregnant suggestion, sees in its rifts and other irregularities evidence of spiral structure in the galaxy itself, with the solar system eccentrically placed between two successive wisps. It is also inferred from the fact that stars of Seshi's first type are twice as frequent in the galactic zone as in the rest of the sky, while his second and third types are evenly distributed, that we are dealing with separate systems. Hence, Pickering and others treat them separately in regard to such problems as the determination of the solar apex, as we have had occasion to remark in previous chapters. It may also be that the whole cosmic cluster is not in the shape of a grindstone or lens with its greatest extension round the plane of the galaxy. Its approximation to the ordinary spheroidal form was suggested by Radu 20 years ago. We cannot see stars further off in the galaxy than elsewhere, at least so far as we know. Stars without sensible parallax and stars on the limit of photographic visibility are found in all directions, and as a set-off against the preponderance of stars in the galaxy is that of nebulae outside it seeming to cluster round the points furthest from the plane. 
If this be so, we may regard the Milky Way as the equatorial zone of a rotating universe and explain the thronging of brighter stars there on the analogy of the bulging equator of a rotating planet, or by the possible acceleration due to increased velocity of the evolution of clusters from nebulae, or by the actual brightening of stars from the same cause, which also may modify or codify the distribution of certain types, yet leaving many subordinate systems within the confines of this universal globe to continue their almost independent motions. This is but speculation. None may read the riddle clearly. We can but peep about, not necessarily to find ourselves dishonorable graves, nor merely to magnify the scientific achievements of our fellow men but rather to marvel at the mighty works of a supreme intelligence and to convince ourselves of our colossal insignificance. End of chapter 33 End of A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant